After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, and you and all his people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your feet will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and um, we're going through a series called Shadows of Christ. We're walking through um, a series of Old Testament passages looking at different characters from the Old Testament, uh, basically looking at how um, God has foreshadowed the hero of the story in the many stories um, of the Old Testament. And this only makes sense when you realize that God is a great storyteller, that He ultimately is telling a story, and that all of um, human history including our own individual stories, are part of God's storytelling. He is inexorably moving things from point A to point B. There is going to be um, an outcome to this story. And the central conflict, the central problem of this story is that man has lost peace with God, that man rebelled against God. And we have sought to replace what we lost in the Great Rebellion with anything. I mean, relationships, people, things purpose. We've lost peace with God and we're desperately seeking to restore that with everything but God. But God has a plan to actually restore things through redemption. He will redeem and he will restore. And of course, that comes through the great hero of the story, Jesus, the one who was sent to ultimately um, take on our greatest problem, to die in our place, to rise again, to give us hope. And so that's kind of what we're looking at in the Old Testament is is basically looking and seeing how um, thousands of years previous through these individual stories, God is, as a good storyteller, foreshadowing how the story's going to go. He's foreshadowing the hero of the story, and he's foreshadowing ultimately how the story is going to um, move forward. Now, this morning, um, we're not just going to be looking at that piece. We're going to be looking specifically at the character of Joshua, and we're going to be looking at the theme of courage because that is a theme that is um, just wrapped up with um, Joshua's life. Now, when you think about courage, um, you're probably going to think of something that ultimately everybody wants, right? Everybody wants to be courageous. Everybody wants to overcome fear uh, and be able to act with, with strength and, and um, courage, right? When you think about courage, there's a lot of ideas that go with it that, that we want in our lives, right? Bravery, strength, integrity, fortitude. We all, nobody wants to be a coward. No, nobody wants to be weak. Nobody wants to be broken by 
threats. And so um, whether it's having hard conversations, um, we all need courage, right? Hard conversations at work, hard conversations in our family, hard conversations with people we care about or don't care about. We need courage, right? We need courage to, to stick to our convictions when our convictions aren't popular. When the things that we need to pursue and move toward um, don't, uh, aren't popular, right? And don't bring us praise, but in fact bring us potential conflict and, and even lead us to being despised. We need courage. We need courage to, um, to stand up for others when standing up for them is going to not only be unpopular, um, yeah, I was supposed to come on a minute ago. <laughs> my, what I'm saying right now has absolutely nothing to do with a cat. Um, but <laughs> courage is one of those things that we all need in life um, because it enables us to move into threatening situations, situations that are not comfortable, situations that could intimidate us or bow us or, or keep us from moving forward, right? We all need courage. We know that. And here's the, here's the deal, you guys. The call to follow Christ is a, a call to courage. If you're going to be a Christ follower, you have been called to walk in courage. Um, and for most people, it's not so much true for us, but for most people through history and for most people even today around the world, faith is costly. To follow Christ costs something and requires courage to do. It's very easy for us in, in our culture. Um, the reality is you can call yourself a Christian today, and, and for most of us, really the most we're going to risk is, is potentially being seen as one of those people by, by people we don't want to be rejected by, right? Like, like somebody who might say, oh you're, oh, you're one of those intolerant people. Oh, you're one of those. So we might, we might face a little bit of social censor. We might um, face mild ridicule. We might not be taken as seriously in certain circles. Uh, we might feel a little threatened by those things. But, but honestly, our suffering as people of faith is, is incredibly minor. Um, and that, that is good. It's a blessing from God. It can also be bad because it can warp our experience and our perspective sometimes. Sometimes we, we think our tiny suffering is incredible. And, and, and when you have few problems, the problems you have tend to just get magnified. And so I want to just for a moment, um, to, for perspective, go a little bit serious on you. And, and we're going we're gonna to take a look at what most people in the world have to deal with when they are followers of Christ. And, and if you want to be more educated on this, if you want to have a better perspective, I encourage you to do some research. There are great websites out there. Voice of the Martyrs is um, uh, a great organization that not only chronicles um, those who have been martyred for the faith, but those who are currently suffering um, because of their faith. And, and um, they are publishing real stories about real people today um, who are, in fact, reaching out and, and asking for their brothers and sisters in Christ, brothers and sisters in the faith, to pray for them. So I want to introduce you to, to Asia Bibi. Asia Bibi is um, a real person. She's um, a 41-year-old Pakistani woman who is now imprisoned in Pakistan. She has two small girls and a husband. She was arrested in 2009 um, after being pressured uh, at her workplace by some women to convert to Islam. Um, and, and in that culture, it's, it's um, perfectly acceptable for people to convert to Islam, but it's not acceptable for people to convert out. She, well, she was already a Christian, so she was safe in that regard, but in her conversation with them, she, she made some assertions. She shared her faith. 
She basically told them, I, I believe that, that Jesus is the prophet of God, the son of God, that, that he not only died, but he rose again and that he offers new life to those who have faith in him and, and that he gives a better promise. He is the true prophet. Well, those words are blasphemy in that culture. And the women beat her. Uh, her employer locked her up. The police came um, and incarcerated her. And she has been in prison since 2009. Um, very recently, they moved her. She was in prison about a mile away from her family, and her family was able to come visit her in prison. Very recently, they moved her to a prison about five miles away, uh, which increases uh, the difficulty of the family to get to her, to visit her, increases the threat to the family um, in the travels to do so. This is real, you guys. Um, this is real. And uh, her husband, Ashik, um, has contacted Voice of the Martyrs and kept them informed purely for the goal of getting believers around the world to be praying for her because they believe in the power of prayer. And he and his two little daughters pray for, for them. And it was pretty powerful. The daughters are praying for the release of their mother and for the blessing of everyone who is praying for their mother. That's courage. That's courage. Um, that's strength in a, in a very difficult situation, right? Where does this kind of strength come from? Where does this kind of courage come from? We have, in our lifetimes, never faced that kind of persecution, not here, and nor do I foresee us ever coming to that. We, we face socially awkward, um, maybe a little bit of censor, but, but that kind of pain. Where, where does that kind of strength and courage come from? Because at the end of the day, I think we all know that, that when the test comes, whatever it is, we want to pass it. When the test comes for us, we want... Um, to be able to take a big step of courage when it's required. Well, kind of what we're going to be looking at today is that if we're going to be able to take the big step of courage when the test comes, we need to be taking the small steps of faith now because it's the small steps of faith that will enable us to ultimately take the big step of courage when it's necessary. And we're going to do that by unpacking Joshua's story. We're going to take a look at Joshua's story, unpack it a little bit, and and see if we can um, pull out some principles that are going to be relevant to us today. So I'm going to encourage you, by the way, to, to pray for Asia and, and their family. That's real. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have the privilege of coming alongside them, praying for them, because we have a God who ultimately can deliver. And um, at least, if, if not bring deliverance, bring comfort and strength um, and fortitude and, and um, even small mercies um, that, that he can afford in their hardship. So let's pray for them as we move forward. So let's take a look at Joshua's story. In Joshua chapter 1, we're at a critical point in Israel's history. There's a transition taking place in leadership. Uh, Moses has just died. Moses was, of course, uh, a tremendously influential leader, um, led the, the Israelites out of Egypt, led them out of bondage, out of slavery, led them through the wilderness, led them to Mount Sinai where there was the giving of the law. And then led them from that place um, all the way to the promised land, this land of, of Canaan. And um, they had, of course, lots of adventures on the way. Uh, Moses has died. And the mantle of leadership is now transitioning to Joshua. And Joshua 1 is basically God's commissioning to Joshua um, for him to, to lead well. In the first six verses, and I won't read them, but, but in the first six verses, when you look at them, essentially what God is saying is, is look, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, I'm the God who delivered 
uh, Israel out of Egypt character. Um, I'm the God who is going to deliver this land to you, power. And I promise to be with you like I was with Moses. So, so um, uh, power and, and, and the presence, right? And so what he's doing is filling Joshua's eyes with, with the reality that, that God's going ahead of him. God has commissioned him. God has given him promises. And God has the power to deliver on those promises, right? So he's, he's filling his vision with, with God's character and ultimately with God's um, ability to provide. Now, if you take a look at verse 6, um, this is the part that grabs me because this is, it goes from, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, verse 8. Now you, Joshua, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to give to them. Drop down to verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In fact, look at the very last sentence in the chapter. We didn't read it. Only be strong and courageous. This phrase, be strong and courageous, comes up a lot in connection with Joshua. Not just here. If you go back in Deuteronomy where where, um, there are passages talking about it, God is always admonishing Joshua. Be strong and courageous. What he's saying is, look, I've made some promises. I need you to lead the people out of courage. I need you to bring a strength of leadership. What the people need from you right now, more than anything, I've given the promises, is they need you to move forward in confident assurance of those promises. I need you to be strong. I need you to be courageous. The people around you need you to be strong. They need you to be courageous. That is the best thing you can give them. Now, I did a quick web search um, for a definition of courage, and I came up with this. I thought it was a really good one. It says this, courage is the quality of being brave, the ability to face danger, difficulty, uncertainty, or pain without being overcome by fear or being deflected from a chosen course of action. So courage is facing any number of things that could cause you to change your course. Um, Discomfort, pain, suffering, even the fear of discomfort. Courage is the ability to stay the course in spite of the suffering. Courage is the ability not to be overcome by the fear, not to be bowed or broken it is the ability to, to move through the fear and stick to your convictions, right? So, so what God is calling Joshua to do is not be fearless, but to move through the fear. Move through the fear with confidence in the convictions that God has given him promises, right? And, and out of those promises, he has confidence in God's power. So Joshua needed courage. Now think about it because they are now standing on the edge of what's called the promised land. The promised land was the land of Palestine, the the land of Canaan. It was inhabited by uh, about a half dozen different tribes of people, none of whom were friendly, okay? Nobody was putting out a welcome mat. These were not small towns that were competing for the best place to live, right? Nobody was going to be written up in the family circles, 10 most family-friendly places to live in Palestine. That, that's not what, These places are, are hostile to outsiders. They are protective of insiders. They have walls. They have weapons. 
they're at war with each other. They're at war with others, right? They trade and they, they're codependent in, in their coexistence. But, but this is kind of a, a warfare territory, right? That's what they're looking at as they, they move into this area. And, and this is a homeless people. The Israelites are coming in, not, not with the strength of, of being able to run home and take a shower and replenish and get a nice good night. They live in tents. <laughs> they have been on the road for over 40 years at this point. We'll talk about that in a minute. So Joshua is giving, uh, God is giving Joshua a, a pretty crazy task. <laughs> go in to this hostile territory because I'm going to give it to you. Now, what I love is that he doesn't just say go on in. It's how he tells him to go in. Now, you can read about this. Don't flip there now, but later, later if you want to, read, read Joshua chapter 6, and, and, and you'll read about their first battle. It was at the city of Jericho. Now, now catch this. They're going into the land, hostile, right? These guys are warriors, and, and everybody above 20 has been trained in, in going to warfare, and um, they're in danger. They're coming to a fortified city. Now, we don't know exactly how thick the walls of Jericho were. We know that from excavations that some of the cities in this area were, in fact, double-walled cities. So they had outer walls and then an inner wall. Um, sometimes the, the walls were up to 20 feet thick. Okay, plenty of room for people to walk on top, incredibly strong, fortified cities, right? So what's God's battle plan to take out this city? You may not be, some of you already know where this is going. You know, some of you may not be familiar with this story. It's pretty awesome. Joshua comes up and he's like, Lord, we got a battle in front of us, right? We're supposed to take this city. What's our plan? God's like, well, you know that marching band? Go get them. And then march around the city once a day for six days and play music. And when you get done marching around the city, everybody cheer. And then on the seventh day, I want you to do it seven times. I kind of want to know how that conversation went down. You know, Josh was like, Have you seen our band? I mean, you, you, you remember what band was like in high school? I'm not dissing on the band. I loved the guys in band. They were musical. They were creative. They were artistic. They were actually some of the funnest people on campus to hang out with. But they weren't necessarily the strongest, muscly, warrior type. They just weren't, right? Take out the marching band. March around the city. Yeah, what about the men of war? Yeah, just leave them behind. All right. I would have loved to have seen how he sold that to the nation of Israel. You know what I'm saying? Like he had to come back to the people of Israel. These are the same people, by the way, that they're constantly like, we will follow you. We love you. And then as soon as anything gets difficult, we're going to stone you. I mean, over and over and over, they, they just turn on you like, like cats. And so they just are vicious, you know? And, and so these guys are, he has to go back to them and sell them on this idea that we're going to take out a city with a marching band, right? How do you do that? How do you convince the warriors to stay behind? How do you convince them not to kill you, right? Because their lives are on the line. They're marching around this city, right? Up on the walls, they're going to be people, right? They built those walls so that the, the men of that city can stand up there and throw rocks at you or, or shoot arrows at you or, or, or go Monty Python on you, right? I mean, it's not a pleasant experience. You know how he sold it? He was strong and he was courageous. 
God has promised. We need to lean into the promises of God. His courage strengthened the courage of an entire nation. He was strong, and his strength strengthened the nation to obey. And they did. They, 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 they marched around. They had their guy up front with the thing, and they played their music, and they all yelled. And on the seventh day after the seventh march, the walls just fell down. It happened. See, Joshua was able to move forward and move them because his courage was based on conviction. God promised, I will follow. And his courage became contagious. His courage spread. The nation followed him and God delivered them. So how did he get here? Was he just a naturally courageous kind of a guy? You know, it just seems like there's some of those, there, there are those kinds of people out there that they're just, you know, few and far between, just maybe naturally gifted in courage. Is that how he got here? Either you have it or you don't. Well, I think there are things we can learn by looking back in his story for context. See, this wasn't the first time they had stood at the border of the promised land. Forty years earlier, the nation had stood right there looking into the promised land with Moses as their leader. And it didn't go so well (laughs) because they were not strong and courageous. And because they weren't, it led to tragedy. In fact, the the story is in Numbers chapter 13. We're going to read some verses over there. So I want you to grab your Bibles and flip over to Numbers 13. Um, If you're using one of our, our Bibles, it's on page 121. Okay, so you can flip back to page 121. We're going to Numbers 13. And while you're um, flipping over there, let me just give you a little bit of backstory. This is basically um, Moses has led them out of Egypt. He's delivered them. God has fed them miraculously through the wilderness with this crazy stuff called manna. The word manna means what is it? I mean, it's just crazy, weird stuff that falls from heaven that they can eat, right? God has given them water um, miraculously at times, even from rocks. Um, God has demonstrated to them again and again and again. I am leading you. I am providing for you. I am protecting you. I am for you. You need to follow me, right? And so they've they've gone to Mount Sinai and they've come to the edge of the promised land and they've never been here before. This is a land they've never seen. So what they do is they choose 12 spies. And each of the spies are from their 12 tribes of Israel. and, And so they chose one man to represent the 12 tribes. It was a man around 20 years old. And those 12 spies went in about 40 days and explored the entire land, walked about 220 miles, uh, checked out all the cities and and looked at all of the people groups, and and they were commissioned to come back with with samples of the produce and and what the land was like, right? And and when they come back, they have to report to the nation of Israel um, what they've they've seen, and that's what we're going to be reading about, okay? So taking a look at chapter 13, verse 25, and at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Now, just to give you an explanation, previous in the text, it talks about this. They came to a land called Haran, which incredibly fertile land still is today. Um, and they found grapes that were growing that were, the clusters were larger than anything they had ever seen. It took two men. They would 
took a post between them and to carry the cluster of grapes. It was so large. And they collected figs and, and I don't know what they are, but apparently they're yummy and, and other things, right? All the produce of the land, right? So, so this is an incredibly fertile land. It's described as a land flowing with milk and honey, which is a really weird way of, of them. That's like metaphorical language. It's rich, right? Fertile. It's a great place to live, Okay. It's a, it's, a, it's a nice little quiet place on a cul-de-sac that's, that's got great land, right? It's just, it's just a good place to locate, all right? Um, verse 27, and they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, however, right? It's a great place, but there were a few problems. The people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. One of the cities they'd be talking about right there is Jericho. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Anak is a, a name that means neck. I don't know what these guys look like, but apparently somebody's neck was so remarkable that they named everybody else after him neck, okay? So there are people there with necks, okay? Verse 29 the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea all along the Jordan. Notice what they're doing here. They already knew this, but they're emphasizing the enemies. Man, those hills. You want to know who lives in the hills and what about by the river? I mean, there's no place. You can't go anywhere without one of these people. And they're all mean. They're just mean people. Verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it. For we are well able to overcome it. Now we're going to talk about his confidence a little bit later, but he's the one voice at this point coming in against them. Like, shut up, you guys. Stop casting fear. Stop, you know, this is our land. God has given, right? So verse 30, so they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land. So they're going to actually make it worse. So it's a ramping up their argument that they had spied out saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. Well, didn't they just say it was a land flowing with milk and honey? See, at this point, they're speaking out of fear. And they're speaking out of cowardice. And, and out of that cowardice, they are trying to convince the people to abandon any kind of plan that might move them toward the threat, but also move them toward the promise. And in doing so, you need to realize who they're doubting. Who are they doubting? God. God is the one that promised them this land. God, the one who, who gave them manna, gave them water from a rock, delivered them from Egypt, has demonstrated through miraculous demonstrations of his power that he's for them, that he's leading them. They're now casting all the vision onto the enemies. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. Now, I love this part. Of all the things you could point out, they're really tall. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're just, the people, there are people with necks, and there are really tall people. And I know we have God, but they're tall. Like, whatever. All right, so they're, they're feeling short, you know? So they got short man's thing going. And there, we saw the Nephilim. They're just lying now. The Nephilim are talked about in the Bible, but it's before the flood, and the flood came and killed them all. So right now, they're just trying to, I don't know, kind of freak people out. The sons of Anak who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, tiny little green hopping things, weak, defenseless. And so we seemed to them 
Not only did we feel like that, but they looked at us and they knew how much more power they had, how superior they were to us. You guys, leadership. Joshua, in his leadership, inspired an entire nation to courage. The 10 spies in their leadership are going to inspire cowardice, an entire nation. You can never underestimate the impact and the weight of leadership. The leaders are being called to act in conviction to God's promises. Look at 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. Now, think about the context here, you guys. Who has promised them the land? Who? God. Who's taller than the tall people? God. Who can break the necks of the neck people? God. Who created the land? God. Who inhabited the land? God. Who knows exactly where and when and how it's all going to go down? God. And yet they are staying up all night long wailing because their eyes are filled with the threat instead of the promise. And the leaders have inspired them to cowardice. Verse 2, And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. (laughs) Again. The whole congregation said to them, Oh, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Those are words that they're going to regret. Just note that. Verse 4, and they said to one another, let us choose a leader to go back to Egypt. All right, we're going to, we're going to, you know, we, we didn't ever elect Moses, but we're diselecting him. We're going to choose somebody else because Moses at this point obviously is going to the land and that's not where we want to go. Verse 5, then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation and the people of Israel. Not in fear, pleading with them. Leaders pleading with them to worship and follow God, right? And verse 6, and Joshua, it's the first mention of Joshua. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, a sign of, of grief and distress, and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out, it is an exceedingly good land. Now notice, here's before, he's like, hey man, this is ours, man, we can do this. Now you see the source of his confidence. Verse 8, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and he will give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. He sees very clearly what's going on here. See, the people are like, oh, this doesn't make any sense. We're going to die. This is going to be uncomfortable. We're, we're outnumbered. But when God tells you to do something, it's not an issue of choice. It's an issue of obedience. Don't rebel against the Lord. And don't fear the people of the land, for they're bred to us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Don't fear them. It was a very convincing speech. It didn't work. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Let's just kill them. Stoning was the, uh, the penalty for blasphemy. 
But the glory of the Lord intervenes. The glory of the Lord appears in the tent. He's like, all right, this meeting's over. We're done here. You guys have said too much. Um, nobody's hurting anybody, not yet. All right, I'm not going to read the rest of the story, but eventually, essentially what happens is God shows up. He's really ticked, um, which he is often. But, but even in that, he's leading them, right? God isn't just responding. He is initiating even in this. He knew that people would rebel. And he goes to Moses and he's like, hey, you know what? I think I'm just going to kill them all. I'll wipe out the entire nation and I'll start over with you, Moses. We'll start a whole new nation with you. And Moses is like, we can't do that, Lord. You delivered this people from Egypt. Do you want all the nations to ridicule you? Do you want, do you want them to say that, that you weren't powerful enough to deliver your people? He's like, you're right. All right, I'm going to stick with them. I'm going to forgive them but they're going to bear the consequence of their choice. And so he turned them away from from the promised land. And he said to them, you are now going to go back to Egypt. And so they wandered for 40 years. Moses led them back to the border of Egypt and through the wilderness for 40 years until all the men of fighting age died. And their sons replaced them. All except Joshua and Caleb. And when they came back in Joshua chapter 1, Joshua is in his 60s. Caleb is in his 60s. And I love that. These guys are leading the fight, right? These are the warriors out in front. But there was a consequence. Now, what's interesting is after God said, look, fine, you want to go back to Egypt, I'll send you there. You're going to wander for 40 years. You're all going to die in the wilderness. You're not going to get to the promised land. A large group of the men at that point were like, wait, wait, wait. You mean you're not going to let us go in? We want to go in. And so they got together and they went in. And Caleb's like, you don't want to go now? God's lifted his protection. They went in and all got slaughtered um, in the hill country, right? And so God says, go in. They said, no. God says, all right, now don't go in. They said, we are, right? I mean, it's just um, uh, cowardice and, and, um, and cockiness, really. Um, and, and, and they bear the consequence. Now, what's interesting is I want to I highlight this. When we read in Numbers, who seems to be the leader? It seems to be Caleb. Caleb is the one that's out front. Caleb is the one speaking. Caleb is the one taking risks. Caleb, it's not that Joshua is showing any kind of cowardice but he seems to be following. Caleb's taking the lead and Joshua's standing with him. Now, when we come back 40 years later, Joshua is in the lead and Caleb is following. We can't read too much into that, but I think we see growth. And I think we see development. I think that that Caleb's courage was infectious to Joshua. Caleb led out and Joshua echoed with his courage and it inspired his courage, strengthened his courage. And as those two, and we see this a lot in scripture where where men or women of courage will in fact work together and feed off each other. They're stronger together than they are apart. Why? Because courage is courageous. I mean, (laughs) contagious, right? So they feed off each other as they move into the land. All right, I think we can make some important observations about the nature of courage. At this point, first of all, courage is a learned trait. It is not natural. It is not intrinsic. It is a learned trait, and it is rooted in humility. Um, Some people are naturally bold. You might be that kind of person. You might know that kind of person. People who are naturally bold just aren't afraid. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're the risk takers. Um, They might jump off high things. They might like to drive very fast. They might find themselves in social situations. They're the ones that do the weird dance, right? They're the ones that grab the microphone and say dumb things. And they're just, they're not worried about it. 
You know what I'm saying? Like they're just not afraid. They're bold. There's a natural recklessness or boldness to them. And they're fun to be around. A lot of times they really are, right? Because it's like, oh man, I'd never do that. It's so fun to, you know, so you kind of feed off it a little bit and, and it creates socially awkward space and it's fun, right? You get to watch people cringe a little bit. Here's the deal. Natural boldness is not the same thing as courage. Natural boldness is not the same thing as courage. People who are bold are acting with a lack of fear. People who are courageous are acting in spite of fear. And even people who are naturally bold can be cowards when they find themselves in situations that truly inspire fear in their heart. See, courage has everything to do with overcoming fear and moving forward, even though you may feel deep anxiety, deep fear. That's why courage is something we have to grow into. It is something we have to foster and recognize its importance in our lives. And that's why it's rooted in humility. See, a lot of times boldness is rooted in arrogance. I've got this thing. I don't care what you think about me. I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, I'm fast enough, I'm strong enough, whatever it is. You're coming into the situation with, a, with an arrogance, with a, a sense of superiority that ultimately allows, frees you from, from feeling judgment or, or, you know, if people look down on you, it's like, I don't care what you think, right? There's a courage is rooted in humility because um, it's rooted in dependence. It's not about what I can do. See, true biblical courage is not courage rooted in high self-esteem. It's courage rooted in high God esteem. I know who God is, and I know that he's promised to bless me, so I will move forward, even if it doesn't make sense, even if I am afraid, even if it is hard. Courage is rooted in humility, which is a response to God's grace, not rooted in arrogance, which is rooted in our confidence and our ability. Joshua showed courage, right? And I think as we look at his story, we see him actually growing in leadership. As he grows in his courage, as he grows in the way his courage influences and impacts others, he grows in his leadership, right? Caleb led, Joshua supported. Joshua led, then Caleb supported. There's a quote in your bulletin by Billy Graham that I love. It says, courage is contagious. I've been quoting it a lot. When a brave man takes a stand, the spines of others are often stiffened. Good leaders inspire courage because they lead with a vision that sees past the immediate to something that we all know we want and we all know we want to get to, but it's going to be incredibly hard. And some of you are like, man, I'm so glad I'm not a leader. Bad news. You are. Right? Now, maybe you're not called to lead a company or to lead a church or to lead in a business or to, but everyone's called to lead. Everybody has a circle of influence, right? Dudes, you, you lead. You lead, you lead your circle of, of people. Like if you're married, you, you lead your home, right? Oh, no, we co-lead. That's great. But you're still going to take a position of influence. And, and biblically, guys, you're called to love your wives like Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? By taking initiation to, to solve problems, not by being passive, but by being active, by loving first, forgiving first, acting first. Guys, it's not about like I have power. It's about being a servant. 
the healthiest marriages as I know are, 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 are going to be modeled by, by people showing mutual respect and love and by guys that are willing to lay down their lives like Christ loved the church, right? That's leadership. That doesn't lessen in any way a woman's leadership in the home. She has just as much leadership in the sense of she influences and leads her husband in mutual submission. Um, she, she influences and leads in the workplace. She, she influences and leads her children, um, it, her circle of friends. Here's the deal, you guys. We all lead. And in the end, we all lead ourselves, if nothing else. We all lead ourselves. And we are either going to lead ourselves to courage, to boldness and courage, or to weakness. Which leads to our second point, which is this. Courage is rooted in conviction more than confidence. Courage is rooted more in conviction than in confidence. See, true courage is not cocky. It isn't driven by a confidence in yourself. It's not you coming to the table and saying, I've got this. I'm able. I'm smart enough, good enough, intelligent enough. I've got it all figured out. Um, It's driven by a conviction that God has it, not me. That he goes ahead of me and that he has promised to bless me, right? The kind of courage that we're talking about comes from trust in God, not trust in self. Now, Israel was an example of, of trust in self. Israel came to the table, and, and when they saw that the enemies in the promised land were too great, they were uh, terrified. Why? Because they looked at their own strength, and they looked at the strength of the people they were called to move against, and they're like, we don't have this. We're not strong enough. We're not good enough. We're not fast enough. And that led them to despair. Confidence in self didn't lead to courage. It led to cowardice. And then it led them to to cockiness, right? When God said, no, don't go. They're like, no, 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 wait, we don't want to leave. We got this. So they went to battle without God and got slaughtered. Confidence in self will ultimately lead... um, to self-destruction because we're going to be overconfident in our strength and underconfident in God's. And, and you guys, we can see this most clearly when things go wrong in our lives. When things go wrong in your life, how do you respond? When you're just kind of traveling along and everything's cool and, and you know, it's a nice breezy summer day and the windows are down and it's good temperature and the right music's on the radio and then suddenly there's a crisis, whatever it is. How do you respond? Do you see it as a crisis or do you see it as an opportunity? The last two weeks have kind of been a lab in this for me. Um, The last two weeks have been like a series of unfortunate events kind of deal, just one after the other after the other. And and I will unpack it all. And honestly, the most painful ones weren't even mine. They were other people that just I shared with them. But, um, you know, one of the things that happened, I was out in California for um, a pastor's conference. Um, Beautiful, beautiful place in Southern California. You guys know, some of you know I'm from there, so I love visiting there. And we we were down by Laguna Beach, which is an incredibly beautiful area. And the very first day that I'm there, I get a text. Hey, Steve, just want you to know, um, we might be losing our space. Bazinga, right? I mean, it's like, okay, time to wake up on that one. Um, I'm like, at first, I'm like, I'm not even taking it seriously. I'm like, really? Come on, man. We've heard these threats before. We've been in this space. And, 
you know, blah, 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 blah. By the end of the night, I'm actually looking at the website, and I can see that there is a company out there, and, I, and I'm sharing this with you guys. This is real. We need to be praying about this. A company out there that lists our space <laughs> as theirs. Um, and they plan to open in October of 2013, which is like two months from now, right? Crisis, right? Like, holy cow, I got a church of like 200, 250 people. Things don't move quickly, right? Lord, what's going on? You know, and so I kind of went sideways that day, right? I'm in California. I'm not enjoying California anymore, right? I mean, it's crisis time. It's like, do we have plan B? Is there plan B? What, what is, and, and, and you're playing out all the scenarios, right? This could go wrong. This could go wrong. This could go wrong. And if this happens and this happens and then this happens and then, and, and pretty soon you're a catastrophic failure. You know what I'm saying? And that night I go to worship. Um, that night we have our first session and um, it, wasn't, it wasn't the speaker that hammered me. It, it, was, it was the worship. We were singing and, and it was actually a style of music that I had a really hard time connecting with and I was irritable and unpleasant anyway. And so I'm just kind of standing there, whatever. And, um, but they just had this, they were, they were singing this one phrase over and over and over and over again. Fairly typical worship music. Um, and, uh, and I'm not criticizing. I mean, it's important. It's good. But, but what, what it did is it just hammered my heart. And as I was listening, I don't even remember what the phrase was now. What I kept hearing over and over again was, I've got this. I've got this. If I have given you my best, how will I not also give you the rest? And I was in tears. You know, by the time we got to the end of the worship set, people were like, man, you like that music. No, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. But God hammered my heart. And what he did was he realigned my vision. You know what I'm saying? He realigned my vision. Here's the deal. When we hit crisis, it takes us off guard. It doesn't take God off guard. God is moving ahead of us. He's already passed through the crisis to the other side where there's blessing. I am being called in that moment to follow with boldness and courage. Not to fill my vision with the threats, not to fill my vision with everything that's going wrong, but to fill my vision with the God who has promised to take me safely to the other side, who has promised to bless And for me, we're talking about the loss of a space. There are people in the world that are talking about the loss of life. Same blessing, same promise, same God. The same one who will ultimately turn their story into a story of glory. So when you hit the things that go wrong, do you see crisis or do you see opportunity? If you see crisis, you know you're walking in self-confidence. If you see crisis, you know you're not walking in faith. If all you see are the enemies, if all you see are the things going wrong, if all you see is everything falling down, what your heart is telling you is, I don't have this. I'm not good enough. I can't figure this out. I am not strong enough. And as long as you are focused on on your weakness, your heart will respond in despair. We're being called to focus on God's strength that he is powerful and that he has promised to bless. And as we focus on his character and his ability, it refocuses our attention and renews within us a hopefulness and a joy. God is ahead of me. And that's what Caleb and Joshua did, man. They filled their eyes with the promises of God and the power of God and allowed them to see right through the Jebusites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the troglodytes and everybody else, right? Could see right through them to the blessing on the other side. And that's why 40 years later, when they came back to the promised land, it's no surprise that they're still leading. 
And that's because their lives had integrity. That leads us to the final point, which is courage is the hidden strength in a life of integrity. Courage is the hidden strength in a life of integrity. Another quote in your bulletin from Winston Churchill, without courage, all other virtues lose their meaning. I had to think about this quote. Without courage, all other virtues lose their meaning. At first, I was like, all right, I got it. Is this just a rhetorical flourish? Is he overstating the case to try to, to drive home a point? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that he was, in fact, not overstating the case at all. Think, think about what virtues you foster in your life, whatever they are. Honesty, integrity, kindness, generosity, purity, care for the underdog, community-mindedness. Whatever the virtue is that you are fostering in your life, that you are growing in, that you are protecting and, and, and hoping will flourish, let me ask you this. What good is that conviction if it fails the very moment you need it to be strong? When things stop being easy, and they stop being convenient, and they actually cost something. Your strength isn't a strength, it's a weakness. Courage is what gives every other virtue sticking power. It's like hidden rebar in a cement wall. When they pour cement and they make walls, they, they put these metal rods down the middle of them. You don't ever see them, but they give the wall structural integrity. If you build a wall without rebar, it's only a matter of time before it crumbles. But it looks strong. And you will build your house on it. But it will crumble. Courage is the hidden rebar of the character of our lives. It's what gives sticking power, strength to everything else. So that we can build, right? If difficulty, fear discomfort uh, or the fear of discomfort can cause you to abandon your convictions and walk away, then your strengths are really hidden weaknesses that will betray you. And they will betray the people around you who are leaning on you for strength. And they will be hurt. And you will be hurt. The time of crisis will come. And when that time comes, we are going to desperately need the sticking strength of courage. But if we're going to take the big step of courage when the time comes, we need to be taking the little steps of faith now because it is our faith that feeds our courage. It is our vision of God's strength and his promise of blessing that ultimately enable us to move forward in confidence. All right, the name of our series is Shadows of Christ. And as I mentioned in the, in the beginning, the, the reason is that we see shadows of Christ in all of the Old Testament stories. So how do we see Jesus in the story of Joshua? Well, first of all, the name Joshua is a name that means Yahweh with us, God with us, Yahweh with us. It is the Hebrew version of the Greek name Jesus. They actually have the same name. And they serve the same function. Joshua is commissioned to take the people 
out of the land of wandering and deliver them to the land of blessing. To take them out of, of the land of suffering, of, of disjointedness, of, of, of having no roots, and bringing them to a place filled with blessing, a land flowing with milk and honey. In the same way that God had commissioned Jesus to take lost and broken people and lead them back into a love-filled, life-giving relationship with God. And if you think Joshua's marching orders were crazy, (laughs) to go attack a city with a marching band, think about Jesus's. God's like, man, I'm going to send you on a mission. I want you to become human. And this is how we're going to win the battle. You ready? This is it. This is how we're going to win. You're going to die. You know, you know everything that's wrong in creation? All the betrayal, all the suffering, all the darkness, all the wickedness that takes place in back alleys and in open streets, everything that is wrong, you're going to become it. That's my plan. The Holy One who knows no sin is going to become sin. And then I'm going to crush you. I'm going to pour out all my wrath on you. My anger toward everything that's wrong in the world, my anger toward everyone who has ever committed an injustice will be poured out on you and you will drink that cup to the last drop. That's my plan. And when you're done, you're going to die. And when you rise again, you're going to be able to deliver people to a land of blessing. You will defeat their greatest enemy, their sin against me. And you will be able to deliver them into genuine forgiveness. Not just a covering of sin, but a removal of sin because their sin will be completely paid for in you. Complete, absolute forgiveness available because you will be their substitute. And there was a lot of fear and anxiety. You think Joshua had to be strong and courageous. What about Jesus? You're not going to find any greater example of courage in all of human history. The Garden of Gethsemane. Some of you that are a little bit more theologically minded or maybe get a little tweaked at me here. I'm, I'm okay with that. I don't know how else to read the Garden of Gethsemane, but fear. The night before he was going to be betrayed, the night before he was being handed up to be crucified, the night before he was going to become sin and judged, he cried out to God. If there's any other way for this to go down, God, if there's any other way for this to go down, let's go with plan B. If you've got any other plan in the hopper, man, now's the time to pull it out. He is weeping and praying, and he's so intense that, that he, it says he sweat great drops like blood. He was so intense, he's bursting the capillaries in his skin so that the blood is mixing with the sweat and running down his face. You don't want to talk about, that's anxiety. But he did not turn away from the course. He did not step away from the commission that had been given to him. He walked through that darkness so he could lead us out of it. He was strong and he was courageous. And you guys, here's the deal. If you fill your vision with that, he'll lead you out of your darkness. I don't know where you need courage right now. 
I don't know where you need strength. It could be that hard conversation that you've just been putting off. It could be standing up for, for truth, even though it's going to be costly. It could be um, um, whatever it is. Christ has already walked through it, man. He knows what you're suffering and he knows what you're going through. And if you fill your vision with his promise to bless you and his strength to sustain you, it will give you faith to look past the challenge to the blessing, past the pain to the joy. And like Christ, you will be able to despise the shame and the suffering for the joy that is set before you. And then you'll understand, you'll start to understand the power of genuine courage. Because big courage always comes from small steps of faith. And our faith is always fed when we look at the one who promises and the one who enables.